a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, this isn't a program about telling you what to think. It is a show that offers you hopefully some very nutritious food for thought and gives you the ability to make up your own mind what you're going to do with it. To that end, I want to welcome my good friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, uh, Merry Christmas to you and welcome to the show. Oh, Merry Christmas, Brian. And let's do our best to inoculate the listeners to the Moronicon. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I I have sat back looking at life getting so normal on so many levels, and then yeah. along comes a variant. And, uh, Who'd have thunk it? Yeah, I can't believe the insanity that, again, is, is being pushed upon us in the name of a, a variant that apparently is so mild, most people hardly will know they even have it. Sure. Well, I'm not surprised by the fact that they're pushing for it. They kind of had to. You know, they, they backed themselves into this corner where they absolutely cannot admit that the pandemic is over, because if they were to admit that, then they'd have to cede all of the tyrannical powers that they've seized in the name of stopping the pandemic. So I, I was fully anticipating that there would be some sort of variant, moronic or otherwise, that would appear uh, right around now and that the fear organ would be grinding up again. However, my sense of things, and you tell me how it is on your end, is that it's very different this time around. I, I have seen very little in the way of a shift in the behavior of people in my area. I'm not seeing much of an increase in the wearing of the chin speedo, as I like to call it, um, and I think people are pretty much done with it. And I, I'm hopeful that if it turns out to be the case, as appears to be the case, that the Moronicon while it spreads more more rapidly, apparently, is far less dangerous than even the virus that didn't kill 99.8% something of the people who got it. It will put an end to this whole thing. And, and yet to, today, um, President Biden is supposed to be making some kind of announcement or something, some kind of a message to follow up on a very disturbing tweet that went out from the White House about, uh, you know, for the unvaccinated, get ready for a winter of death and suffering. Yeah, sure. and, Good heavens, you know, I mean, who is who is giving them their their talking points? Well, I'm sure it, it was our, our friend, the doctor who doesn't practice medicine, Fauci. Right. Uh, you know, they're having to kick up the fear uh, because you have to do that. You know, once you once you put people into a state of mass hysteria and they're literally quivering with anxiety and fear, how do you maintain that? Uh, you have to simply increase it or try to. Uh, I think, however, that after a while, it becomes difficult for them to maintain it. And I like to draw historical parallels, and you may you may remember this one as well. Toward the latter uh, part of World War II, around 1943, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Goebbels, who was the Nazi's propaganda minister, uh, issued a call for total war and tried to whip the population into a state of absolute hysteria uh, against the Soviet hordes and the Jewish capitalists and all of those kinds of things. But by and large, the German people were at a point of passive resignation and were just over it. 
and we're just trying to ride it out, knowing that it was going to be over. It was just a question of surviving it until the end. Right. And, and I, in some ways, I wonder if we aren't actually in greater danger right now than we have been previously, simply because those people in power who appear to be willing to, you know, to crash this thing into a mountainside rather than relinquish that power. Mm-hmm. I think their fear that's driving this this lockdown mania is that they fear that the power is actually slipping through their fingers. Of course they do. And uh, even more so than that, that some of them might actually be held accountable. Can you imagine if uh, the pandemic ended and people started to ask questions and say, you know, wait a minute, how many people's businesses were destroyed over this? What about all of the outrageous, tyrannical excesses that occurred under this? Uh, Who's responsible for this? Hmm, Could it be the doctor who doesn't practice medicine and some of these other people who did the equivalent of scream fire in a crowded theater and, and whipped up mass panic and mass hysteria and then used it not just to scare people, but to damage people and to destroy people's lives? And then these pharmaceutical cartels that have been using the government to forcibly inject people with a, a whatever it is that is causing unprecedented harm, actual physical harm to people. Think about the potential liability, the criminal penalties that could ensue if this stuff ever gets properly investigated, if the country ever settles down back into a state of sanity and normalcy. Boy, that's that's a good point. And and what also puzzles me, Eric, tell me about your thoughts on the, the they're pushing the vaccine even harder. OK, so the, the variant is spreading yeah. like crazy. They say that, uh, oh, there's more cases than ever. Shouldn't that tell us that uh, the vaccine ain't exactly performing as it's been advertised? Well, you, you would think so if people had any critical faculty left, and I think some do. But a good example of this, this insanity, uh, that maniac Jim Cramer on CNN, who a oh, couple yeah. of weeks ago was urging that the military be used to forcibly uh, compel people to take the jab. Uh, this clown, this fool, to use the title of his show, uh, recently announced that he's got the Rona or the Moronicon or whatever it is. And guess what? This guy was, was jabbed three times, three times by his own admission. Uh, and yet he still hasn't, hasn't been able to, to reason it out. Hmm, wait a minute. I've had three doses of this, this alleged vaccine, and yet I still got sick? What, 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 what? It does not compute like the robot from Lost in Space. Right. Would you continue taking aspirins that didn't stop headaches? I mean, it's, it's baffling to me. No, I, I agree. And, and of course, even former President Trump is, is kind of getting in on the action now about the vaccines. Talk to me about uh, uh, his remarks and the response from the crowd uh, just recently. Boy, you know, as you know, because I think you and I have talked about the orange man on uh, many prior occasions, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with him. I've been very ambivalent about him. Like many people who wanted some kind of return to sanity, I voted for him back in 2016 because the alternative, Hillary, was absolutely unpalatable, and I figured he couldn't possibly be worse and he might be better, and in some ways he was. You know, he did dial back some regulations. He did do things like take the United States out of the Paris Climate Accords, and on balance, I thought overall that was pretty good until we reached the fourth year of his presidency, and he gave over the presidency to President Fauci who ran the country into the ground for the last year of Trump's presidency. And after that point, I began to have very second and third thoughts about the orange man, particularly that he did not uh, oppose the vaccines. In fact, that he pushed them at warp speed, to use his term, on the populace. And lately, now, he's gotten even more strident about it, and he's urging everybody to take the vaccines, but he doesn't want to mandate them. Well, 
fine, but if you say that people should take the vaccines, you've accepted the narrative that this is important for people to do, it's reasonable for people to do. And I'm hoping that finally the rest of the, the MAGA army will realize they were used by this man and it will push him off the stage, perhaps in favor of somebody more sound like DeSantis come 2024. Yeah, it's it's not often that you'll hear Donald Trump being booed by the people who would yeah. show up in an event where he's speaking. But uh, I think the last couple of times that he's brought up, get your vaccines, you know, yeah. the, the crowd has, has been, no, no, sure. we're not going to. They're, they're, very, uh, they're very upset about it. Well, as they should be. You know, it, it's remarkable to me when the whole warp speed thing came out, and, and even since then, that more people didn't stop and question and say, well, wait a minute, we're talking about a drug that you inject into people's bodies, and you want to put this thing out at warp speed. Uh, normally, it takes five years to test using double-blind and placebo testing to determine whether something is safe and to see whether it has any you know, long-term side effects, which you can't establish without a track record of several years of such testing. They want to just put this out there. I mean, it's the most reckless an irresponsible thing I can imagine, particularly as regards the majority of the population. It's one thing, it's a reasonable thing, to put out some kind of an experimental medicine that hasn't been tested very well. If you're talking about people who really stand a great chance of dying absent this medicine. So I can see elderly people, you know, people who are very obese, people who have all of the various comorbidities that everybody knows about by now, that put them at potential risk of of dying, not just getting the sniffles and feeling bad for a few days, but actually dying from this disease. But for the rest of the population to compel them to insist that they subject themselves to this risk, it is an evil thing. You know, I, I try not to use that word too often, but it is. That's the definition of what's going on. And I'm appalled that Trump is pushing it, and I hope it pushes him off the stage. Well, it's, it's very clear that those of us who still value our freedom and our personal autonomy we have a decision to make. And for some of us, that decision is made. But the time to sit on the fence is rapidly drawing to a close. That fence is looking more like a razor blade these days. Well, it is. And I think actually that the uh, the lines have been drawn for some time. I think that the overwhelming majority of people who are willing to make themselves experimental guinea pigs or to trust the pharmaceutical industry or to trust the government with their with their health, those people have already taken their jabs. I think the people who have been reluctant to get jabbed and don't want to get jabbed, those people are not going to get jabbed come hell or high water. In fact, I think as more evidence accumulates, despite the incredible attempt to suppress the evidence, VAERS, for example, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, to not talk about it, to not talk about the fact that young people are getting myocarditis and pericarditis, Bell's palsy, all of these other things, to suppress that, speaks volumes, but people know what's going on. You know, we're, we're seeing almost on a daily basis healthy young athletes dropping on the field, and people aren't going to willingly inject that kind of a substance that might cause something like that into their bodies. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Eric Peters is my guest. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. There is a link in today's show notes where you can check out his wonderful website for yourself. Eric, in addition to uh, matters of freedom, you do a lot of writing on automotive things, and sometimes the lines cross on these two issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, 
I understand that uh, the incredible gas mileage the federal government insists auto manufacturers reach is about to go up drastically. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, the Biden thing, that's how I'll refer to him from here on out, uh, has just issued another rule, and that's their term. And I like to use that term, too, because it's, uh, it's a very accurate one. You know, we no longer live in a democracy, though we're constantly told that we do, in which laws are passed by elected, elected representatives that we can uh, recall using the ballot box. Instead, we're ruled by decree, by, by bureaucracy. So the federal government has simply decreed, that is, ruled, that by 2026, which is four years from now, all new cars will average at least 55 miles per gallon. The current rule is 36. And leaving aside the question of whether the government should be in the business of, of ruling on this at all, uh, we have to consider the fact that at this moment in time, right now for the 2022 model year, the only cars that can comply with this rule are small hybrids like the Toyota Prius and uh, the Hyundai Ioniq. So essentially what they've done is to issue a rule that will effectively outlaw every kind of car that isn't an electric car or a partially electric car like these little hybrids, because if you don't meet the rule, you get socked with fines. So the cars become more expensive to, 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 try, to, to try to sell to people, and when people can't afford to buy them, they don't sell, and so the manufacturers stop selling those kinds of vehicles. I got a bad feeling in my stomach about this, but I can't exactly put my finger on why that is. Um, help me understand. What do we lose when government dictates that uh, this is the only kind of car that uh, manufacturers can reasonably make? Well, you lose choice. You lose the, the ability to decide for yourself among competing values. You know, I, I have nothing against the Prius. I think the Prius is a great little car, and it gets fantastic gas mileage. But... Uh, it's not a car that's very usable if you have a, a family that you need to haul things around with. Uh, it certainly can't pull much in the way that a truck or an SUV can. So it has those attributes of being highly fuel efficient, but those highly fuel efficient attributes cost you in other ways. Now, contrary-wise, let's say that you have a, a pickup truck. A pickup truck might not average anything close to 55 miles per gallon, but it's something that you can carry around six people in, let's say, if it's a crew cab and has a nice big bed in the back that you can haul four by eight sheets in or your dog and that can pull your trailer and you choose that and are willing to pay the cost in mileage in order to get the gain in value of all of these other attributes but we have these insufferable arrogant people who think it's their job somehow their right is the right word to tell us no 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 you can't have it your your needs your wants are irrelevant you are going to take this because that's what we think you must have this is what we're going to we're going to deny your choice what's happening is the sovietization of the american car industry to the point where we're going to if we're going to be allowed anything at all it will be what i call the the universal transportation transportation appliance kind of like a latter day american <laughs> take on the old soviet trabant remember those yes oh man that's uh... What a tragedy, too. I'm just I'm not saying that uh, cars are the only thing in life, but they're one of the better things in life for sure. Well, people take it for granted, and I think soon they're going to be confronted with the, the costs of doing that, uh, you know, because for many decades, the government has been involved actively in, in regulating cars since the 60s, at least. And over the past several decades, by and large, the car industry, and this is quite a testimony to the, the brilliance of their engineering capabilities, has figured out ways to comply and to meet all the government rules and regs without utterly destroying the car. But we're now at the point where the only way to satisfy the government is 
to build the universal transportation appliance, which essentially is going to be an electric car skate. You know, you've probably heard that term, like a, a common electric car under thing, a chassis onto which you put a body, and the body might be shaped differently or colored differently, but it's essentially the difference between a DeWalt and a Makita drill. It's all the same. Wow. And it's, it's also going to be very high cost. That's something else that's it's never elaborated in the majority of the analysis that you'll see about things like this rule. They'll talk about, well, it's going to shave you over the life of your car, $1,000 in gas. They don't tell you you're going to be spending 15000 or $20,000 more for the car. Yeah, and, and, and you have uh, been one to really open my eyes as well as a lot of other people's about some of the downsides of electric cars. People mm-hmm. who are traveling right now in winter weather, for instance, let's just say, for instance, you get caught in a blizzard or you slide off the road and you are stuck. Um, how do you stay warm? Well, right. You stay warm by, you know, hopefully the battery is fully charged because the battery is what provides the heat in an electric car. And, uh, you know, as long as that lasts, you stay warm. The problem is it doesn't last very long. And I think people don't appreciate the way, in a best case scenario, this is going to slow down their everyday life. You think about how uh, at the very best case, using the very latest technology and assuming you don't care about how much it costs, takes about a half hour to instill any kind of meaningful charge back in an electric vehicle, whereas it takes, what, five minutes to fully fuel uh, a standard car that has a gas engine. So now you've got to think about spending a half hour sitting at some kind of an electric car charging station. I don't know. Are you going to be on your cell phone all you know during that time? Or are you going to be doing emails and whatnot? I mean, people are used to and take for granted this wonderful convenience and versatility and ability to just, you know, at the drop of a hat without thinking about it, Jump in your car and go somewhere and not worry about, well, I mean, I, you know, if, I, if I get run low on gas, I'll just stop over here at the gas station and fill up and I'll be back on my way. That is going to be over when this electrification agenda that's being forced down our throats is finally forced down our throats. So I'm, I'm going to ask you just to prognosticate for me. Do you ever see a day in the future where we will see our former freedoms restored, especially in terms of automotive choice, in terms of the market determining what uh, what will be created as opposed to government dictating it? Well, that depends. I wish I could remember the exact quote. I think it was Frederick Douglass who said, you get the amount of tyranny that you're willing to put up with. Yeah. And until we push back against this and say, no, this is not acceptable, and not just us, but also companies, uh, you know, I've been doing this since the 90s, and there was a shift in the car industry in the 90s. Formerly, the car industry would fight back when uh, an obnoxious new rule was being pushed by the busybody apparat of the government. But something happened, the wheel turned, and they decided that it was better to love Big Brother, and it was better to even anticipate these rules and become more over-the-top excessive themselves in anticipating and putting this technology and these, these so-called features into vehicles uh, and thinking that they could continue to survive and make money that way. And what's needed is for these corporations to realize uh, uh, they're committing Harry Carey. Uh, you know, I talk about electric cars a lot, and the, one of the main questions that I bring up is, how in the world is this going to work when the least expensive electric cars are pushing $40,000? Now, that's about twice the cost of a basic new car. You can pick up something like a you know, Hyundai Elantra, a, a Toyota Corolla, a Honda Civic. Those are just a few examples. You can pick up cars like that for about $20,000 or even less, you know, and, and, and now you're talking about doubling the cost of vehicles. How, are we going to double the ability of the American car buyer to buy a car? How is this going to work? I don't understand it. 
Yeah, it seems to me, and this is just the conspiratorial wheels turning in my mind, we're being shepherded in a position or into a position that makes us ever more dependent on the state at every level of our lives. Well, I think that's exactly what they want. And it's not just the state, to be fair. Uh, equal blame goes to these corporations, which what they want is serial revolving debt. They don't want to sell you something, and that's the end of the transaction. You know, you buy a car, and now it's yours, and you own it, and you control it, and you've got this car for, you know, 15, 20 years, however long it lasts before you want another one. What they want is for you to make a monthly payment forever, just like with your cell phone, uh, just like with maybe Hulu uh, or Amazon Prime or any of these other things. They just want you constantly paying over and over and owning nothing, and they're blatant about it. You've heard their phrase. Uh, the World Economic Forum. You will yep. own nothing and be happy. That's their vision of the future. Well, in a world that's uh, busy trying to convert our immune systems to uh, subscription service, I guess it, it makes a certain amount of sense. Eric, isn't that interesting? That's another one. It's exactly of a piece. They want you to constantly have to line up for a jab, which you'll ultimately pay for one way or the other. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock. Let mm-hmm. me wish you the happiest of holidays. Stay safe, and I'll look forward to talking again soon. Sounds great. Merry Christmas, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to a few of my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Sewing and Quilting Center, also in St. George, HSLAmmo.com and GovernYourIncome.com. By the way, uh, just a quick heads up here. Talked to a Kendall from Life Saving Food yesterday. Um, he has had to modify the special here, and this was a great deal, and he has honored this deal, but uh, the, the deal that was going from this day forward now is 10% discount when you purchase your food storage through him. Free shipping, no sales tax, Still a killer deal, but uh, you know I don't know how to how to say this. Other, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to create panic or anything like this. Prices are going up. You're going to see this uh, in in everything. Inflation is is going. I'm sorry. This this sounds like just here. Let me let me just dump this bucket of bad news right at your feet, and you can figure out what to do with it. But uh, the bottom line is, there is never a better time than right now to act on getting those uh, personal preparations in place. And I, I'm sorry, I wish there was better news. I wish it was like, you know, actually, it looks like inflation is going to be uh, recite, receding and your dollar is going to buy more and more. Mm, uh, probably not so. We've got some pretty challenging stuff ahead of us. And I expect it's it's going to be challenging going into 2022. Now, this isn't a call to, you know, be, you know, bummed out and, you know, just basically curl up in a ball and give up. But you got to face reality at some point, right? And the reality is things are pretty unstable. I, I still subscribe to the idea that this is part of that whole fourth turning, you know, crisis that is building, which means a lot of this is out of our control. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, how to how to deal with the things that are within our control. And actually, in the next segment, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how to... Uh, Survive suffering like a champ. 
<laughs> oh, you think that's you think that's a a spin on you know well well just you're going to suffer and you're going to like it. Actually, uh, Annie Holmquist has a really great essay on this. I want to start with something else, though, and I I actually find this encouraging, but in kind of a backwards way, and that is the the fear mongering right now is is really intense, and it's it's totally possible that I'm missing something here. I don't uh, I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't know everything, and it's very possible I could be wrong. I mean, I'm trying to pay attention, but, you know, my resources, my time, my understanding, they're finite. But the fearful tone that I hear politicians, and particularly the media, taking over this Omicron variant of COVID seems very disproportionate to the actual harm that it's doing. I mean, South Africa, where the uh, variant was first discovered, has said, look, it's this is... Uh, Spreading very rapidly, this one appears to be much more contagious. However, it also appears to be much milder, meaning that hospitalizations and, and deaths, in fact, I'm not even aware, at least in the U.S., of, of anybody dying from Omicron variant yet. Well, Brian, people are still dying of COVID. Oh, I believe that. I'm just saying this seems to be following the, the natural course that a virus will follow as it becomes endemic. So it makes you wonder, why are they pushing so hard? They being people in authority as well as the media. Why are they pushing so hard this huge wave of fear? Well, Ron Paul says it's the lockdowners' last stand. This is their desperation to hang on to power. Why are they desperate? Well, because people like you and me don't believe them. We don't trust them. We've started to see through the the thin fabric of their narrative and it's it's clear that a lot of this is is manufactured the crisis is manufactured even if the virus is real the the crisis and the way that uh, those in authority are responding to it well it's it's being hyped here's what ron paul says he says just as president biden's unconstitutional vaccination mandates were being ripped up by the courts authoritarian politicians public health bureaucrats and the mainstream media announced a new COVID variant to justify another round of lockdowns and restrictions. So the things that didn't work last time would be a good idea to do again this time, they claim. Ron Paul says for these authoritarians, the timing of Omicron's emergence was perfect. The variant was first discovered in South Africa with the U.S. and European media running endless scare stories. Authoritarian politicians used the manufactured fear to justify another attack on liberty. Europe shut down and became a virtual prison camp. In Austria, Germany, and elsewhere, citizens became non-persons without a vaccine passport. Now, Dr. Paul says South African health officials reported that the variant seemed to be more contagious, but far milder than previous variants, as usually happens with such viruses. But the lockdowners would not hear of it. From Boris Johnson in the UK to de Blasio in New York City, the variant was perfect cover for them to put their boots back on the necks of terrorized citizens. Now, as to be expected, Fauci reveled in the emergence of the new variant, warning of record deaths for the unvaccinated. Similarly, President Biden has warned that this would be a winter of death for the unvaccinated. But here's something the media isn't reporting about the Omicron outbreaks, and that is they are taking place among the fully vaccinated. 
Cornell University, with 97% of the campus fully vaccinated and a mask mandate, has announced that it would return to online-only instruction after a massive COVID outbreak. Likewise, the NFL has postponed several games this weekend due to COVID outbreaks, even though the league is virtually 100% vaccinated. And the National Basketball Association, which is above 95% fully vaccinated, well, they've just announced that due to a surge in COVID cases, it too will postpone games. Ron Paul says the vaccine is not working to prevent infection or transmission of the virus. Cases are raging in states with the highest vaccine levels, yet the experts continue to maintain the only thing that can stop the spread of Omicron is more vaccines. More people are catching on that this makes no sense. If vaccines don't stop the spread, how can vaccines stop the spread? Meanwhile, South Africa, with one of the lowest rates of vaccination, has just announced that they're only seeing a tiny fraction of hospitalizations with Omicron compared to previous variants. South Africa's COVID response authority has written to the health minister recommending an end to containment efforts, contact tracing, and quarantines. So you, you, you get this, right? Unvaccinated South Africa is ending COVID restrictions while the hyper-vaccinated North is locking down. Ron Paul says something isn't adding up here. Now, Fauci loves to say that to question him is to question science. But this has nothing to do with science. It's about power. Fauci, the political authoritarians, and the corrupt big pharma billionaires are trying to make a last stand, desperate to push Omicron as a justification for further tyranny and profits. Unfortunately for them, the actual science is not cooperating. So, Omicron is spreading. Vaccines are not stopping it. Thus far, nearly half of Omicron infections are asymptomatic. Now, some experts are predicting that the Omicron will end, that Omicron will end the spell of COVID-19. But Ron Paul says we know that as long as people like Fauci are around, COVID-19 will never end. Unless, of course, we repudiate the the charlatans and profiteers and reclaim our liberty. I know that's a tough sell for some people. And I'm not going to suggest that anybody who disagrees with Ron Paul on this is just stupid and wrong and they're evil and probably wish that they were Hitler. Come on, that's that's the cheap way out. I think we have to factor in <clears throat> the fear that's being pushed by the media. Now, case in point, um, my biological father just, you know, had, had sent me a, an article from the New York Times a few days ago. And... I want you to understand, he is coming at this from, I, I think he's absolutely coming at this from, from the right place in his heart. He just said, look, I haven't said much about COVID. He and I know, he knows that he and I are probably on different pages here. But he said, I do worry that you are at risk from this new variant. And you know what? Maybe I am. So he sent me this Times, this New York Times article. I read it and, and you know, the, the article struck me as very, very fearful. So I'm not blaming anybody who reads these articles from going, ooh, this sounds really, really serious. It, it does sound serious. There are just a lot of things that don't add up, and at the top of that list of things that don't add up, at least for me, is the idea that there are people in authority who are, are somehow claiming that they have the prerogative to force people to accept a medical treatment that they do not want. So that's the line. You know, if you want to get the vaccine, I'm... Totally okay with that. I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm not going to treat you like you're some kind of super spreader now that you're vaccinated. 
even though it's, it's very clear, the vaccination does not stop the transmission of the virus. It's that coercion that is so bad. And, and I guess my point here is there are good people who are legitimately afraid because of all the fear that's being pushed by people in authority and by the media. I'm going to go with my gut on this one. And I got a pretty big gut. So when I go with it, I'm feeling fairly confident. But that's where I stand. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to get my show notes in your email inbox, first of all, I just would say please feel free to. You can go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click the subscribe button, and every day that I do the show, I will send out some of the show notes to you. Actually, I'll send you the complete show notes with links to all the various articles or the various people that I have interviewed or am interviewing. I want you to uh, I want you to be able to have access to this information, not so you can see, see how right I am, but uh, actually so you can look at it yourself, weigh it for yourself, and then decide, you know, whether you incorporate that information or not. This ain't about forcing you to agree with me. It's not about, you know, you've got to you've got to subscribe so you can see how right I am. I just know that there are people who are very serious about looking things up for themselves, going through and following the threads wherever they may lead because they're pursuing truth. I'm guessing you probably listen to this program because you're one of those truth seekers. So I trust you to make the right decision. You can, again, go to the com, hit subscribe. I will happily send that information along to you. So I'm not trying to be a damper on the festive spirit of the season. But if you were to stop and think about it, you probably know someone who is suffering right now. Maybe they're acutely suffering at this time of year. In fact, maybe you're the one who's suffering. That could be for any number of reasons. It doesn't have to be, you know, COVID or lockdown related. You know, just life has a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things that we have to deal with. I found a great article. Actually, it's an essay by Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Surviving suffering like a champ. Why would you want to survive suffering like a champ? Well, okay, I'm going to take a quick stab at this and say, first of all, because you're never going to avoid suffering. You can try, (laughs) but life, uh, the, the rules that govern this world mean that we're all going to be, you know, at risk of being subject to suffering at some point. Now, I hope that your suffering is not something that's prolonged, and I hope it's not something that's devastating, but you can't live without putting yourself at risk of suffering. Here's what Annie Holmquist says. She says, when a friend challenged me to reading a contest on Goodreads a couple of years ago, I was reluctant. Did I really want my reading selections broadcast on the Internet for friends and strangers to see? But she says, despite this qualm, my arm was twisted, and I began recording the books I read often giving them a starred rating based on how much I like the book. Now, she says, let me be clear. I'm rather stingy with my five-star ratings. In other words, a book really must speak to or move me before I will give it such high marks. Yet, she says, as I think back on the books that I've given a five-star ranking to, a common theme stands out, and that is suffering. Now, suffering may seem like a gloom and doom topic, says Annie Holmquist, especially during this time of year where everything is supposed to be joyous and bright. 
Yet during the holiday season, when many of us most when many, any when many of us must struggle with suffering, whether it comes through the need that comes with the loss of a job or the loneliness that results from a broken relationship or death, or the sadness of hurts and memories from past seasonal gatherings that rear their ugly heads, how we deal with suffering in our own lives is what makes or breaks us as individuals. So she says, take just for take just a moment to peer at my bookshelf of five star favorites. And she's got some great examples here. Here we see the suffering of, of Jane Eyre, in which Charlotte Bronte's title character experiences painful loss and physical hardship because she believes it necessary to remain true to her principles. Next to it stands Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, which reveals the historical and academic evidence for the physical and mental sufferings of the one who gave birth to the largest religion in the world. Pandemia was recently added to this five-star shelf, And in this latest book from former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson, we see more clearly the suffering of the COVID-19 pandemic that's been inflicted upon all of us through the dictates of our leaders and bureaucrats. And finally, A Path Through Suffering and The Path of Loneliness, both by the late author and speaker Elizabeth Elliott, demonstrate ways to overcome hurt and pain. Now, Annie Holmquist says, It was this last author, Elizabeth Elliott, who has particularly amazed me this year. Elliot, a well-educated linguist, was the wife of Jim Elliot, who was martyred in the 1950s along with four other missionary men by tribes of natives they were trying to minister to in the jungles of South, South America. Their story reached mainstream America via Elliot's biography of the men and continued through Life Magazine's photo essay on Elliot's later life, working among the very tribe who murdered her husband. Now, the many works Elliot wrote on suffering emerged not only from this tragedy, but also from other losses, such as the death of her second husband from cancer. Now, when going through suffering, it's easy to dismiss the help and advice of others with the thought that they have no idea what they're talking about. But with Elliot, the case is different. She went through loss, through suffering, through pain, through loneliness, And instead of frantically seeking to push hurt aside and fill the painful void in our lives with other things, she counsels us to look up and find a refuge for our loneliness in God. In the path of loneliness, she says to stop our frantic getting, spending, and searching, and simply to look at the things God has made is to move one step away from despair, for God cares, end quote. Now, if anyone had cause for bitterness over the loss and pain she endured, that would be Elliot. Yet she tells us that it's possible to both accept and endure loneliness and, by extension, all forms of suffering. So how do we do so? Elliot gives us the answer. In circumstances for which there is no final answer in the world, we have two choices. Accept them as God's wise and loving choice for our blessing, this is called faith, or resent them as proof of his indifference, his carelessness, even his non-existence. This is unbelief. Interesting quote, wouldn't you say? Now, Elliot obviously chose the first option, explaining that she accepts her suffering as a gift from God and then gives it back to him as an offering in return. Now, that's a foreign concept in our society today not only because we're encouraged to play the victim, even when receiving the smallest hurts and offenses, but because many Americans regularly relegate God to a corner of their lives or not at all. Annie Holmquist says, but what if we tried Elliot's approach to suffering? 
instead of continually bemoaning our troubles, both public and personal, what if we accepted them as a gift from God, a gift that, although painful at the time, could turn into beautiful character or other benefits down the road? She says, doing so gives us a completely different lens to view the world through. And in a world that is increasingly broken and strewn with victims who only wallow in their suffering, few individuals who choose to do the opposite will make a world of difference. I believe what she's written here. I believe this with all my heart because I've seen it in practice many times. Now, I also want to say this from the standpoint of I don't consider myself an expert on suffering. In fact, I want to be very careful how I say this because I don't want to make it sound like I'm daring the universe. Hey, I haven't suffered enough. Um, I feel like uh, the the amount of times in my life that that I have legitimately suffered have actually been pretty few. And, and I'm not saying I'm better than anybody or God's protected me from this. I Honestly, if, if there's anything, he's probably going, hey, uh, you know, take it easy on Hyde. I don't know if he can handle this. <laughs> he's probably taking pity on me. But I do agree with the idea that suffering has a refining effect on those who use it correctly. And I know that's a, that's a tough thing to say, especially if, if you are one of those people right now who finds yourself in the middle of suffering. It, it probably doesn't feel like it's for your own good. Truth be told, when I look back on the experiences that have brought me to a new level of, of personal betterment, there was always some kind of suffering that was involved. There was always some kind of discomfort. And I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about some big existential loss. Yes, you know, the loss of my father 32 years ago, that was, that was a terrible amount of suffering there. That was hard. But I'm talking about simple stuff, too, like the, the suffering of getting off your butt and going and exercising and aching muscles and burning lungs as you're trying to run or something like that. Yeah, that counts as suffering as well. But you talk to somebody who's, you know, done it consistently, what happens? They become stronger. They become acclimated to it. It's not that the the nature of what they're doing has grown so much easier as their capacity to do it has, has grown. Okay, one final thought. Because suffering is sometimes especially keen at this time of year, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to do this as well, keep your eyes peeled. Better still, keep your heart open to looking around you and recognizing when the people in your life may be struggling with something. Sometimes it's not going to be obvious. Sometimes it'll, it'll be something people are very def- desperately trying to keep, you know, on the down low. They don't want other people to know that they're suffering. But if somebody's name pops into your head, maybe a couple of times in the course of a day, think about checking on them. Think about giving them a call. Think about extending some encouragement. Even little acts like that can help another person bear that burden. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. 
You know, my job here isn't to tell you what to think. It's not here to uh, spoon-feed you pre-digested bits of thought so that you don't have to, you know, do the dirty work yourself. I spend my day looking for the best, most principled information, incredible information that I can find that's usually of a nonpartisan nature, believe it or not. And uh, I try to find that, put it together, and serve it up to you with a bow each and every day in this program as well as in my show notes. Now, what you do with that information... I trust you to do the right thing. Some some may say, well, that's just, I don't agree. Right? I can't accept that. That's fine. I do appreciate you, though, considering some of the different points of view that are out there. And to that end, that's why I do what I do on a daily basis. Thank you for being a part of our growing audience. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Govern Your Income, Sewing and Quilting Center, HSLAmmo.com. Also, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, there's a lot of fear going on right now, and I really hope I'm not doing my part to push that fear. But I am trying to call attention to what, what to me, feels like an unprecedented amount of just hype. And this official fear frenzy, if, if you're going to resist giving into it, this is going to require conscious effort on your part. I wanted to start this hour with a recommendation by Dr. Mark Circus. I hope I'm saying his name right. I don't think it's pronounced circus. Um, but he says to spread love, not fear, during the holiday season. And he says, it's been a while since I've made a personal communication. For starters, I wish everyone the best holiday possible. Though it's a time for joy, it's hard to make any serious communication without mentioning what's going on in the world. For instance... Governments worldwide are introducing new restrictions to curb the spread of the Omicron variant. Well, we might as well try to curb the spread of the common cold or ordinary flu or even curb people's thoughts. He says they say that Omicron is rapidly spreading, but to know that, they would have to have installed extremely expensive testing equipment all around the world, which they have not done. So again, we have a propaganda virus being spread by the elite-owned media, which hates the the human race with lies. Here's one of those headlines. South Africa delivered good news. Actually, I take that back. This is is one of the uh, remedies to their lies. South Africa delivered good news on the Omicron coronavirus variant on Friday, December 17th, reporting a much lower rate of hospital admissions and signs that the wave of infections may be peaking. Huh, we don't hear that much from a lot of these mainstream outlets. Okay. The virus, which is probably a fantasy, says Dr. Circus, is reported to be mild, maybe even milder than the common cold. Though no one seems to have died from it, stock markets are dropping because of this fiction. And for those who love to panic, and for politicians and demented virologists who eat up any excuse to take more power, just go ahead and panic. But the rest of us should enjoy our holidays. Here's another news quote. The English, who love bad news, are saying England is almost certain to be suffering hundreds of thousands of Omicron variant cases a day. Now, the insightful Tom Luongo said there is still the threat in its name to our liberty and sanity from those who profit most from fear of the virus. The aftershocks from COVID will be with us for the foreseeable future. An entire generation has been scarred by this manufactured apocalypse. And he says there will be no going back to the way things were, end quote. Now, Dr. Circus says, look, I've had to toughen up my skin to protect my heart this past year. 
even though I've always had tough skin, but the news has been dark, so menacing that its stress has gotten past my defenses and affected how my heart beats and is indeed responsible for my high blood pressure. Now, he says, I've recently brought that under control, not with medication, but with slow breathing. Now my heart rarely skips a beat. In addition, I've been taking almost a gram of magnesium a day not to have a stroke or heart attack. He says, in my meditations and prayers every day, I focus on two things. The first is that God is giving himself to me and everyone else constantly, like 24-7, in the form of our pure consciousness. The second is that the love I receive from my wife is as constant. And he says, between these two things, I fortify myself, steal myself from the constant barrage of bad news. If we do not focus on love, we will drown in the nightmarish sea that our politicians and public health officials have waiting for us. Dr. Sirkis says, humanity is under direct attack from criminal organizations like Pfizer, the FDA, the CDC, National Institutes of Health, and organizations like the Gates Foundation. It seems like at least half the brains on the planet have been hypnotized by the core terrorism inherent in the field of virology. Many virologists and public health officials are traitors to the human race. They are into killing babies and slaughtering the young, and we think Hitler and his inner circle were evil. Yes, they were, but these guys are worse. He says, I know it's the holidays, but take a look at what's happening. Sorry to communicate this kind of stuff when we should all be having a good time with our families, but the tanks in the form of needles, are not stopping for anything or anybody. But no matter what, we still have to tune in to love and our loved ones and our connections with our higher selves. He says, without love, we were always doomed. Without listening, there is no love. So love the one you're with, goes the old song. Now he does pose the question, why would anyone trust Pfizer? It's hard to believe anyone would trust these organizations and the people running them. Long have a significant part of humanity swallowed that hogwash that vaccines are the best thing to ever happen to the human race. Now, he says, I want to believe these next 12 weeks will be telling about human suffering. My advice is that if you want to protect yourself from this Omicron variant, do the exact opposite of what the globalists tell you. They've completed their takeover of the U.S. hospital system by firing all the sane and ethical staff that refused the bioweapon shots. So intelligent people are planning to take care of themselves through more natural means. These next three months should expose the truth of many things. For one, millions of people will be threatened by the increasing cold because of the lack of money to keep warm. And it's not only money, but measurable decreases in energy stocks because green energy sources haven't panned out as hoped. Also, because the cold is increasing, we need more energy and money than ever before, just as we have less of both. It'll be a miracle to avoid a financial calamity these months, but these next few months, but it's coming to a theater near you sometime. Already, it's more expensive to be alive as inflation eats into whatever wealth we have. Yet the well-off are feeling no pain. Jim Rickards tells us the global system is already fracturing. The bottom line is, if supply chains are breaking down, the economy is breaking down. If the economy breaks down, then the breakdown of social order is not far behind. And the costs of social disorder are far higher than any possible savings from supposedly efficient supply chains. So would you believe I'm stocking up on cell phones and computers and natural gas for my stove because all of these things are at risk? Now he says, we don't need to move to China 
to lose our freedoms because China's absolute control over its population is coming to us. Freedom is in full retreat in the Western world, though in Brazil, he says, where he's lived for the last 30 years, the government is too weak and too busy stealing to interfere with the public. He says, I've offered to help a few families relocate to the Southern Hemisphere through the years, and I'm surprised no one ever took me up on my offer. Now it's incredibly late and expensive to make such moves. He says, I ended up here three decades ago because I prayed for a new life with all my heart and got the answer in a few hours. I was always a fish out of water in the United States, so I never looked back. But he says, it's the ultimate tragedy that criminals are in charge of the earth. In the name of public health, they've taken over, and even those confronting them, like Senator Rand Paul, are being way too nice as people. And now babies increasingly die. But unfortunately, it's not just ordinary criminals, but criminally insane psychopaths who've claimed the right to dominate 8 billion people. Dr. Mark Sirkis says, look, we are paying dearly for the mass viral insanity. Suicides are way up. American auto accidents are up 20%. We see a 16% increase in death by all causes in Europe. COVID didn't threaten healthy people near as much as those with preconditions. However, COVID vaccines target healthy people, which is why we're seeing a 60-time increase in the death rate of athletes. I've got a link to this in the show notes. There are links within the article. Might be worth your time to consider them. I'm not saying just because I said it on the show, you got to believe it, but I'm grateful that there are people out there who are sticking their necks out and, and putting some of these alternative viewpoints and alternative information out there for us to consider. I don't consume much in the way of mainstream media. I don't listen to what politicians are saying because it's been pretty clear to me for some time. They don't have my interest in mind. Their only concern about me, at least as far as they are concerned, is that I shut up and obey. And that's not likely to happen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to give some uh, quick love to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I know if, uh, if you are moving to the Beehive State, you have probably figured out that is one hopping real estate market right now. It's, it's tough to find homes, you know, on the market. When one comes on the market, people snap it up very quickly. People are waiting in line. To pay cash, they'll offer, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 above the asking price just to make sure that they get that home. That's pretty competitive. And what it means for you is you need to have your financing squared away before you go home shopping. So from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has what you need to get you the loan without delay. They have the decades of experience. They have the understanding of what the lenders and borrowers need. They have the financing available. Contact Heather at 435-703-4522. Stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. 
All right, let's talk about our duty to avoid harm. And this is something that's kind of changed a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, Case in point, when's the last time you sneezed or coughed in public? Well, I know, we've all had that urge, right? You're out there standing in the supermarket or something, and suddenly I'm like, "Oh, oh, here comes a sneeze. How hard do you fight not to let that sneeze happen? Or if you have a cough, I mean, it's even on Zoom calls, people cough, and it's like, yeah, it's not COVID, really, I promise. And, and the reason is because there's a pretty sizable chunk of the population that has been trained to believe that, oh, somebody sneezed. He's trying to murder me. I don't think they're joking either. I think some people are like, seriously in fear. So I've got an article here from Chris Bateman. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. Asking the question, is our duty to avoid harm unlimited? And the reason you want to ask this question is because before you go forcing people to undertake, well, you put on the mask or you stand here and you don't go there and you, where's your papers? Before you start mandating things on other people, maybe we should first of all see, is that a legitimate use of government power? Chris Bateman says on Tuesday, December 7th, 2021, Former CDC Director Dr. Tom Frieden made the following remarks under the CNN brand. Quote, if everyone masks indoors where COVID is spreading, everyone is safer. Just as your right to swing your fist doesn't extend to someone else's nose, your right to bare your mouth and nose doesn't extend to killing someone by spreading a deadly virus. Mask mandates need to be implemented, enforced, and adherence monitored to build a collective sense of responsibility and achievement at high levels of mask wearing, end quote. Well, now Chris Bateman says these are extraordinary claims, although they will not seem so if you accept all the underlying premises. So he says, let us set aside for now the problem that evidence in support of community masking remains weak and also that scientific debate over the efficacy of masks has not been permitted in mainstream media coverage or in most medical journals. And he says, let us also set aside the breach in medical ethics implied by this failure to support the scientific process in the context of community masking. These are important ethical issues that warrant discussion, but he says, these are questions concerning scientific discourse. And Dr. Frieden's claim is not a scientific claim at all. It's an ethical one. He claims there's a direct parallel between our duty to avoid violence and our duty to take steps to prevent viral transmission in the case of a dead deadly virus. And in both cases, he claims that our duty to prevent harm requires us to take or avoid certain actions. And then he asks, is he correct? See, the trouble with trying to bring topics in ethics into political discussions is that the former is complex and nuanced, a community of debate where nothing is resolved beyond dispute and apparent answers always lead to further questions inevitably emerges. Now, conversely, the latter, politics tends toward oversimplification and largely obliterates nuance in the desire to assert the superiority of a certain package of beliefs over its alternatives. So Bateman says, I think it's clear Dr. Frieden's remarks here are political and that he's not claiming any knowledge of moral philosophy. But this is not to claim that only ethicists can debate such matters. Far from it. Moral philosophy is something we all engage in. We just don't necessarily engage in it very well, though. 
Dr. Frieden's claim can be seen resting on two principles that he apparently holds and believes we should all hold. First, that we have an obligation to prevent harm, for example, by not punching someone in the face. Second, that in the context of a deadly virus, those obligations extend to mitigation measures. Now, the former seems like something we ought to all accept, although it's nowhere near as clear-cut as the fist story makes it seem. The latter presents serious problems for citizens of democratic nations. He says, unless we are pacifists, our duty, our duty to avoid harm by violence is not unconditional. Police officers, it's taken for granted, are permitted to use violence to apprehend criminals, even to the level of lethal force. Likewise, many countries believe in just wars. In other words, that there are some situations where we can possess an ethical obligation to wage war. Regardless of the values you hold in respect of these particular cases, the general point remains. The assumption that your right to swing your fist doesn't extend to someone else's nose might be an overstatement. Most of us recognize some situations where violence is justified. An especially relevant case here is boxing. When people opt to conduct violence in the name of sport, no such restriction applies. The voluntary nature of that situation is crucial to understanding why protecting noses from fists is not an unconditional duty. There are situations where punching noses is expected. Now, Dr. Frieden's second assumption is even thornier. Let us come back to the deadly virus part of his claims. Not because SARS-CoV-2 isn't a deadly virus, but because there are further complexities here that need considering separately. For now, let us question the idea that where a cause of death is concerned, we are obligated to pursue mitigation measures. I love the example he gives here. He says, I learned to my disappointment this principle is not one that many people share. Automobiles, by far our deadliest technology, cause around 1.2 million deaths globally every year. And they're an especially, especially a significant cause of death. Now, he says, I've argued in papers and books for nearly a decade that if we did want to mitigate this cause of death, which is frequently in the World Health Organization's top 10 causes of death for any given year, and never much below number 12, we would cease to manufacture motorized vehicles with a top speed higher than 25 miles per hour. Now, this design choice would uh, drop the cause of this cause of death to almost nothing, the social cost of which would be that some journeys would take longer, yeah, much longer. But we're not interested in taking this path. Why is that? Well, it's not the longer journeys that are at task. Even if we prohibited automobiles from traveling faster than 25 miles per hour, and this only inside cities, while allowing vehicles to reach faster speeds on the interstates, people would still be generally opposed to this kind of intervention. We prefer much higher speed limits, even though we know those limits are routinely ignored, creating significant risks of harm that we are capable of eliminating. The problem here is that humans are not actually very good at evaluating risks or understanding the implications entailed in comparing different causes of death. But at root here, it seems that civil society largely wishes to view deaths from accidental causes, like road deaths, as a risk we're willing to bear in order to keep the transportation network that we are accustomed to. Does that seem unfair that he would use that example? Because that's pretty hard to argue against. Brian, if it saves just one life, yes, 
If it saves just one life, we should make cars that only go five miles per hour. And we should require everyone to wear, you know, electrically insulated flotation suits that are bulletproof. And a helmet everywhere, too. After all, if it saves just one life. But it does get kind of ridiculous. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to our friends at uh, the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. That would be Teresa and Eric Alsop. They are the owners of this wonderful business. It's been around since 1984, and if you or someone you know loves to sew, loves to quilt, loves to embroider, wow, you really should uh, take the time to visit them and understand they not only sell the machines, they service the machines as well and have been doing so for years. They can train you on how to use your machine to get the most out of it. Now, look, I don't know. Um, You know, I'm watching the rising uh, rate of inflation. I'm seeing that uh, things are costing more across the board. And I have to wonder if maybe the people who have the ability to either fix or to manufacture their own clothing aren't going to have some kind of an advantage here in the not-so-distant future. Nevertheless, it seems like kind of a prudent thing to be able to, you know, take care of uh, creating things, warm blankets and, you know, clothing and things like this. Anyway, just a little thought starter. I would encourage you, please check them out. 779 South Bluff Street in St. George. They have a wonderful website, which you can uh, link to from my show notes, sewingquiltingcenter.com. And tell them thank you for sponsoring the show. I'm looking at an article here again. This is from uh, Chris Bateman about is it our duty or is our duty to avoid harm unlimited? Because we're being told that, hey, you know, in order to prevent the spread of COVID, we have to impose all of these incredible restrictions on your freedoms, and it's your duty. You're saving lives when you obey. That seems pretty clear-cut, right? But it's not. And Chris Bateman does a very good job of deconstructing some of the premises of these arguments. Now he talks about uh, talks about uh, how we could we could lower deaths if we uh, just made sure that nobody ever drove faster than twenty five miles per hour. But that's not a that's a we're willing to assume risks in order to have a transportation system that gets us places. I was driving home last night with my family. It was my son's birthday, and we uh, went to uh, my in laws to have some cake and ice cream and just. As, as I was driving home, I was uh, tooling along the interstate going, man, it sure feels good to drive 80 miles an hour. Wink, wink. Sorry. I, no, I, I keep it you know pretty close to 80 there. Anyway, I'm thinking back to uh, you know 40 years ago when I got my driver's license and the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. Even the simple trip <laughs> between neighboring communities took so much longer. And, you know, in many states, you know, 20 miles an hour over the, the posted speed limit, that's a, that's reckless driving. That's, that's an automatic appearance before a judge, and you're going to be led away in handcuffs after you get stopped. So I'm cruising home at 25 miles an hour faster than was legal to do back when I first got my driver's license. And, you know, maybe I'm just a little bit of a speed freak, but I kind of like it. I like the fact that we can safely travel, we can get where we're going. Anyway. The bottom line is, 
the duty to mitigate risk is not unconditional. This is this was uh, Mr. Frieden's second implied principle, the quote that was given at the very beginning of this article. The reason being, civil society makes its own judgments about which risks it's willing to consider mitigating, which risks it's willing to bear. So the United States, for instance, is willing to bear the risk of selling fast food that has enormous negative health implications, or selling cigarettes that have enormous negative health implications, of selling guns and cars, both of which entail significant consequential deaths. In all of these situations, the citizens of the United States have decided individuals are free to make their own decisions about the risks involved, even when they entail significant risk of harm to others. The key is you hold people accountable for causing, especially deliberately causing harm, and you leave everyone else alone instead of pretending that everybody is going to harm everybody else, and therefore we have to put all these preventive laws in place. But Chris Bateman asks, does a deadly disease upend our standards of judgment about risk mitigation? He says, I hope it's clear at this point that Dr. Frieden's argument rests almost entirely upon this question. And I suspect that many people who share political views with Dr. Frieden also share this ethical assumption. Yet what counts as a deadly disease? Heart disease, cancer, and stroke collectively cause half of the deaths in the United States. But Chris Bateman says, I think it's clear this is not what's meant by deadly disease in Dr. Frieden's sense. If we were obligated to undertake mitigation measures for these diseases... Well, we would restrict or ban fast food and tobacco, which would greatly extend the lives of a significant number of people. Yet, as with the case of restricting the, by design the speed of automobiles to save lives, these mitigation measures are simply not on the table, whatever the benefits in terms of reduced mortality. So, deadly disease is presumably a short form of deadly communicable disease capable of playing a major role in bringing about someone's death a category that certainly includes includes SARS-CoV-2, malaria, and AIDS, which are the sorts of diseases people are likely to think about in this way. But it also includes influenza, and yes, even the common cold. Because in the immunocompromised or the elderly, these infections are deadly diseases too. Indeed, every year prior to the arrival of SARS-CoV-2, roughly 2.5 million people around the world died of respiratory infections annually. Yet unlike the case of capping the the speed of motor vehicles by design to a velocity radically unlikely to cause death, these diseases are not entirely preventable. Because although we no longer like to admit it, we all die in the end. And respiratory infections are one of those end-of-life diseases that primarily affects the elderly. Which is why the average age of death from complications related to SARS-CoV-2 in Europe and the U.S. is around average life expectancy. Now, even if we accepted Dr. Frieden's principle that we're obligated to adopt mitigation measures against infectious diseases, we would still face terrible decisions about which infectious diseases we should count as worth intervening over, and when we should disrupt aid to other nations in order to mitigate deaths from one cause of death in our own nation. So what should we make of Dr. Frieden's comment about masks? A large number of people seem to agree with him completely. Chris Bateman says, I'm inclined to see in this a suggestion, in this suggestion rather, a proposal to create an entirely new society of people who believe that we must not pass infections if they might cause or contribute toward the death of others. 
He says, I set aside the weak evidence base for community masking earlier because Dr. Frieden's comments make it clear that at this point, it's unimportant. He advocates later in the article for N95 masks, and if he's sincere in these remarks, he would eventually have to advocate for even stronger protective equipment, maybe all the way to hazmat suits. Logically, the use of these protective measures would not be constrained to any crisis situation. Since influenza can be passed by anyone and will contribute to a number, a significant number of deaths in the elderly, what's being asked for by Dr. Frieden and those who agree with him is a new form of life where everyone wears filtration masks at all times. Now, Chris Bateman says, I trust I speak for a significant number of citizens of Europe and the U.S. when I say that we do not think such a form of life is desirable, and it certainly can't be justified on the basis of any scientific evidence currently available. It's not a scientific truth, but rather a political choice that living in a state of permanent masking is desirable. Even if both of Dr. Frieden's principles were to hold unconditionally, the behaviors that would be implied would still be open to debate. An ethical requirement to take action in the face of a deadly disease in no way specifies which actions are worth taking, especially in the absence of any public debate about the many possible mitigation strategies. There were numerous possible plans of attack. We were not restricted to masks and lockdowns in this regard. Without a debate over these possibilities, there could be no democratically justified course of action. See, the truth is, strictly speaking, there is no right to swing your fist at all. And the question of anyone else's noses doesn't come into the discussion. Rights are promises made by our societies that we can choose to uphold or dismiss. And the matters they're concerned with are authentic questions of political freedom. Those promises include a commitment not to force medical interventions on people against their will, a promise that entails freedoms with respect to both vaccines and face masks. We made human rights promises because we wanted to protect life and property and liberty from potential abuses. To renege on them for any reason is to reject the value of liberty and to choose to live in some other kind of world. Now, Chris Bateman says, those of us who wish all to wear face masks in the hope that this will save lives have an obligation to pursue research and encourage scientific debate over whether this measure will be effective and to investigate and discuss which harms are entailed in this course of action, including all of the terrible harms caused by singling out one cause of death to the abject neglect of all others. He says a society of the masked is highly likely to be far worse at limiting deaths from communicable diseases than one that, at the other end, combines research and scientific debate with the known strengths of our natural immune system. That this bizarre splinter society is also one that turns its back on our human rights agreements is merely the confirmation of what many of us have long suspected, that the politicization of a nasty virus now threatens to unravel civil society in its entirety. What a great article. There's a link in the show notes. Check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for joining us for our daily experiment in wrong think. I've been at this for a while. I was I, I want to mention this. Sorry if this seems like a bit of a flex, but uh, 37 years ago today, 
I cracked open the radio microphone for the very first time in my life. And, of course, I had something very in, in, very compelling and very intriguing to say. I believe it was, um, <laughs> followed by, stay tuned. Oh, what a moment of panic. Anyway, here I am 37 years later, still trying to decide if it's going to be my thing. I don't know. Jury's out. I'll let you know if it, if it works out, though. Nonetheless, in that time, I have seen a lot of interesting things. I've seen a lot of different trends come and go. And I'm just thinking back. It wasn't, uh, wasn't quite three decades ago. I think it was 1995 that uh, then-President Bill Clinton said something along the lines of, you can't say that you love your country and hate your government. Well, you know, since the time that he said that, the blinders have actually come off for a lot of us who've learned for ourselves that America is much more than its government. So I would beg to differ. I think you can very much love your country and be absolutely at odds with your government. In fact, I've got a great article here from J.B. Shirk. This is from AmericanThinker.com. America is much more than its government. He says, if there were three quick lessons I wish people would understand about government, they are these. Number one, governments do whatever's necessary to secure and expand their own power and wealth. Okay, that seems true. Number two, governments have no capacity for morality and will lie about anything large or small. Okay, I don't want to believe that one, but it does ring true nonetheless. And number three, governments always put their own interests ahead of those they purport to govern. Now, I think he, I think he actually is batting a thousand on all three of these. He said that's, that's the dirty truth of it. Politicians and state-run media corporations can slobber about the selfless and noble souls who sacrifice their lives as public servants so that they may lift the people up. But he says that's all dribble, no bucket. An honest politician, as if any existed, would tell you politicians are in the business of creating problems where none exist so that they can solve them, declare victory, and then parade around as heroes. And while they're fast to proclaim poverty... Their vocation is entirely about pecuniary gain. They engage in the, in, in the kind of insider trading and quid pro quo that would send anybody else in America straight to prison. Many of them enter office with lint in their pockets, and many retire as millionaires. Taxpayers, in effect, pay criminals to represent their interest, and to nobody's surprise, the criminals fleece the taxpayers silly and drop new problems at their doorsteps along the way. It's all grift and gripe for personal glory. By the way, if I could just make a quick observation here too. The people who I see working the hardest to actually uh, hold up the standard of freedom, to push back against government overreach, that's one of the favorite accusations that their detractors, in other words, the uh, government supremacists among us, will, will try to saddle with, you're just a grifter. You're just out there trying to make money off people foolish enough to buy into what you're selling. They don't see the irony. Most of these people are doing this on their own dime. Sometimes they do it with donations, you know, that, that friends or listeners like you, you know, will, will send their way. In the meantime, it's the politicians. It's the, it's the bureaucrats who are extracting taxes from people at threat of, you know, gunpoint and financial ruin and prison. Nobody sees them as grifters. Why is, is that? Is that supposed to be the only respectable work? It's not legitimate unless you're working for government. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. 
Back to J.B. Shirk's article. He says, that being the case, the populace governed by these charlatans and felons responds to this outrageous behavior and routine dereliction of official duties by coming to one of two possible conclusions. Either, one, citizens properly deduce that people in government should never be trusted, or two, they look around at all the fires started by government actors, stick their heads up their own derrieres, and decide that only more government could already fix the crises already created by too much government in the first place. He says, I know, I know. How is it possible so many people choose the foul odor of number two? I wish it were as simple as pointing out the obvious truth that half the population is running on overheated mental hardware limited by sub-hundred IQs. He says, I wish I could say, and that's how we came to have two political parties, one represented by elephants, known as exceptionally smart mammals, and the other by Equus asinus, known universally as the common ass. However, as old guard Republicans have put the stupid in the stupid party for decades, it's abundantly clear that politicians, regardless of party, will do anything and everything to corroborate the three dirty truths up above even if they do so while paying lip service to the virtues of limited government and the people's inalienable rights. It's because stabbing Americans in their backs is a bipartisan undertaking. So here's where the the scorecard stands. Runaway inflation. A collapsing currency set in motion by an unconstitutional central bank that manipulates the dollar and destroys personal savings. A health emergency that's been systematically abused to blow up the Bill of Rights. A voting system that nobody trusts because of its inherent and intentional conduciveness for enabling fraud. School children who have never been dumber yet more indoctrinated by communist claptrap. An unprotected border that has helped destroy communities around the country with crime, division, and drugs. Global war against amorphous threats of terrorism, which has morphed into a dangerous domestic war against Americans for their political beliefs and endless attacks on traditional American culture by nasty, self-glamorizing moral posers intent on despoiling Western civilization, wrecking Judeo-Christian sanctities, squashing families out of existence, and plundering anything left over to help pay off some treasury IOUs owed to China. He says, let's be clear, the American people built none of these catastrophes. Their worthless government did. He says, I think some overrated former president once said some version of that to great applause. (laughs) I love that. I'm sorry. Now, on the positive side. Oh, who am I kidding? He says, right now we have death, debt, and dystopia brought to us by a man with dementia yammering incessantly about our precious democracy. Isn't it revealing that the handful who occupy the seat of government are always so insistent on pretending that they represent democracy? J.B. Shirk says that's called propaganda, friends, so that the real majority is linguistically bullied into submission by fewer Americans than have been killed by the China virus. How does one king bring 99 lords to heel? By whispering into each noble's ear that the other 98 are already on his side. As it was with feudalism, it is today with the American government. How dare you stand up to Congress in the White House? That's an attack on democracy itself. One of Alan Moore's brutally, uh, delightfully brutal yet sagacious observations is this. People shouldn't be afraid of their government. Governments should be afraid of their people. Now, he says, I find this notion to be so elemental to any functioning free system that I think we would all fare well if it were chiseled into the marble of every D.C. institution as an obligatory reminder to its inhabitants. 
Not at all different from ancient Rome's tradition of having a slave slave continuously whisper into the ears of victorious generals parading triumphantly on chariots through the streets. Remember that you are but a man. However, he says, if anyone dared stand before the U.S. Capitol today with a bullhorn, reminding lawmakers that governments should be afraid of their people. Well, he says, I don't think it would be long before that speaker would join the January 6th political prisoners who've been thrown into the dungeon and treated heinously for nearly a year. To attack democracy? To threaten America? Heavens to Betsy! When words are treated as violence and the U.S. government is allowed to pretend it is America, well, then everything is an insurrection. Shirk says, I know for a fact that D.C.'s propagandist invented an insurrection out of thin air earlier this year because, number one, Capitol protesters were armed with nothing more than American flags. Number two, only unarmed unarmed Capitol protesters were killed by Capitol police. And number three, you can't overthrow the American government by merely prancing around half naked and taking selfies in Nancy Pelosi's desk chair. If the American government is in fact considered overthrown after the equivalent of a college streak through the squad through the quad, why should the Russians ever need tanks or fighter jets to conquer America? Apparently sending in the crew from Animal House and letting them rain crazy hijinks down on Congress is sufficient for the US government's full surrender. Who knew? No wonder Lindsey Graham urged officers to fire on unarmed American citizens, however boisterous, at will. To save democracy, we must kill all the voters, perhaps. I don't know, just spitballing, but it sounds like a good slogan for the Democratic Party. Shirk says, all of this is to say one thing. America is much more than its government. The American people and what they want are more important than what the collection of grifter criminals who occupy government offices want us to believe or tell us to believe. There are no statesmen in the molds of Pericles or Churchill or Washington left. Politicians now only know one word, obey. And he says Americans should have only one answer. You first. Love it. You'll find a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Hit the subscribe button, and I'll send those notes to your email inbox each and every morning. This is The Brian Hyde Show.